Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Most of us have at least a few things that we know would be good to do, but it's hard to do them. Similarly, there are things that would be good to stop doing, but we keep doing them anyway. Speaking personally, I know that I should probably go to the gym a bit more often and should probably watch videos on YouTube a bit less often. On today's episode, we're continuing the strength of motivation by learning how to take control of the brain's motivational circuit and incline our often difficult minds toward more positive ends. So I'm joined today, as always, by Dr. Rick Hansen. To put it simply, why doesn't just knowing that something is bad for us stop us from doing it, and vice versa? Right. Well, one way to think about that is that that knowing, which is an experience, mm. is supported and enabled in very modern portions of the brain in the so-called neocortex, sort of toward the top and outer sides of it. And they often uh, have the effect on the rest of the brain, like a passenger in a runaway car Mm. shouting, stop or Mm -hmm. turn left. Literally, we have the thought, but the thought cannot uh, itself put the brakes on Mm. or itself direct us down a different road. And that process of slamming on the brakes or directing oneself down a different road is mobilized by much more ancient parts of the brain, parts that we share with uh, much simpler animals such as lizards Mm -hmm. or mice that have to put on the brakes or have to keep searching, in the case of a mouse, for some cheese. And those regions are in the subcortex. And we'll be talking, I'm sure, about the machinery of them. And understanding the machinery of them actually helps the parts of you that in effect, are being enabled by networks in the upper outer regions of the cortex to gradually exert more influence over these ancient motivational systems. And this is a really deep topic because if you think about it, in a lot of ways, the key to a good life is helping yourself learn to want the things that are good for you, which you don't currently want. Mm Mm-hmm. So knowing how to incline your mind, that's kind of a traditional term, incline your mind in the direction you want it to go, also addresses what's called willpower fatigue. Mm -hmm. Because uh, yeah, we can white knuckle our way through life as they put it in AA, but uh, that's stressful and and wearying and we tend to burn out on willpower over time. Mm -hmm. So it's much better to, in plain English, develop different habits so that we naturally incline in certain directions. To learn how to learn how to guide yourself is a fundamentally useful thing. Mm -hmm. So what are those older parts of the brain and how do we influence some amount of control over them? To simplify a fairly complicated thing, when there's a sense that something is rewarding and important to do, and uh, a sense of this that really penetrates into us, So let's suppose that a person is exercising at the gym, in your case, Mm -hmm. and in my case, on the treadmill in the garage, and it feels good. What those experiences of reward do, neurologically, among other things, is to send signals to a part of the brain in the brainstem called the ventral, which means frontal or lower, tegmental area. Ventral is the opposite of dorsal, like the dorsal fin of a shark sticks out the back. Ventral comes from the Latin for window. 
It's in the front, and I know you want to know these things first. (laughs) So this little area in the brainstem called the ventral tegmental area uh, is where uh, the, perhaps not the majority, but many, many dopamine-producing neurons are located. The other key region uh, in the brainstem where they're located is called the substantia nigra, which really means the dark substance. But that's more involved with motor control. Back to... Uh, the ventral tegmental area. So these dopamine-producing neurons there send their little tendrils throughout the brain, and uh, they release dopamine as a result of the sense of reward or information that implies the expectation of reward. They send dopamine in two key areas. One is the nucleus accumbens, which is in the subcortex, and the other key area is the prefrontal cortex right behind your forehead. These two parts of the brain do different things. Mm -hmm. The nucleus accumbens is really, really, really important. Um, It's also sometimes called the ventral, remember, frontal or lower striatum, just to really confuse everybody. But it's the same, different terms for the same part of the brain. Mm -hmm. In the nucleus accumbens, we talked about it, I think, in our previous podcast or one before the last one, it's involved with liking and wanting. Mm -hmm. So liking becomes wanting really quickly. So let's suppose now that a person is experiencing liking something with increased dopamine-based activity in the little nodules inside the nucleus accumbens that have to do with wanting, then signals are sent to a nearby part of the brain called the globus pallidus, and on from there to the thalamus, this big switchboard, which then initiates action. So now there's action toward getting on the treadmill or action toward lifting those weights in the gym. The other thing that happens that's really cool is that the, I know you're looking at me. I'm really into this stuff. It's so neat how the brain does this. <laughs> it's really true. The other place where the other target, if you will, of these uh, ventral tegmental dopaminergic neurons, dopaminergic, you can say that a few times in a row, I'm sure, <laughs> goes up to the prefrontal cortex. That's the other main target. And the prefrontal cortex is more involved with focusing attention on that which we're supposed to do, Mm -hmm. and also gets involved with making plans for really doing what it is we're trying to take action toward doing. And the result, bottom line, is that through these two pathways that involve both uh, motor processes, action processes, as well as higher level regulation of attention and planning and executive functions from the prefrontal cortex, through these two pathways, the increased sense of reward inclines us in the direction that we go. So the trick then is to get control of this motivational machinery and hack it uh, in good ways so that we increasingly want to do what's good for us and others. All right. So that sounded very impressive. Um, I agree, because it was impressive. <laughs> it was very impressive. <laughs> Sounded very impressive. To to cliff notes all of that very quickly into a kind of uh, day-to-day fashion, if you will, it's that bit at the end there, right, where you said you want to strengthen the connection fundamentally between action and reward. Exactly. So that when you do a good thing, you feel a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that implicit in that is a really important teaching. If we think in general about the behaviors that we're trying to cease, the addictive behaviors, things as we were talking about before, like watching too many cat videos on YouTube, or eating too many sweets, or really whatever it might be, 
These behaviors tend to have a very, very clear and immediate connection between action and reward. You do the action and you get a pleasurable experience. Flip it the other way around, the behaviors that we have sort of a tougher time committing to, say going to the gym, have a much more tenuous connection between the action, going to the gym, and the reward, whatever it is that we're trying to get from that. And then throw in the fact that going to the gym sometimes isn't the most pleasurable experience for some people. It can be challenging, it can feel awkward or uncomfortable, and so on. So these reward experiences are much, much, much stronger around those addictive activities, which makes an awful lot of sense. You know, it's that stimulus response, like you're training a pet. Mm -hmm. And if you're training a pet, if they do a good thing, they get a good thing. Mm -hmm. If they do a bad thing, they get a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But in our human lives, the connections often don't really work that way. We do a bad thing and we get a good feeling, or we do a good thing and we get a bad feeling. And that can be very, very challenging for our tricky brains. I think for us, that is one of the most astute and penetrating and original observations I've ever heard about motivation, Mm -hmm. really. And it's poignant and haunting, isn't it? So what to do about it, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that uh, has struck me about this, this issue is the real importance of being able generally to self generate very juicy, very sensory, very emotionally rewarding, mm-hmm. luscious, delicious, let's say, imagined results from taking beneficial action, which might include putting on the brakes on harmful action. Mm. Through your imagination, essentially, or through a version of what's called technically affective forecasting, mm. being able to mm-hmm. imagine the rewards of a particular behavior. And so, for example, uh, with regard, I'll use myself, uh, getting on the treadmill, the rewards, as you very accurately say, are distant and in the future. Like, oh, wow, the level of fitness I accumulate through this one time I spend half an hour grinding uphill Mm -hmm. might, I don't know, uh, help me live two more days as I approach my 90th birthday or something way out there, I guess, sort of, maybe, huh? And with that extremely fuzzy, distant, Uh, reward, uh, it's hard to overcome the immediate rewards of just sitting on the couch Mm -hmm. one more day. So to deal with this issue here. So I think one of the takeaways uh, is first in general to develop the capacity for richly imagined beneficial futures for yourself that are paired with what you want to motivate. Mm. And then in building on that general capacity, really use it to help yourself Really, really, really feel how great it'll be mm-hmm. in ways that you believe, you have conviction for, they seem authentic, uh, to do that what you want to do. And then the crux of it is, once you get that luscious movie running in your mind of the rewards you're going to get, mm-hmm. uh, the trick is to pair it in some way, to associate it in some way with what you want to motivate. So it would be like seeing yourself before you do it, let's say doing the action. Stopping with one cookie or getting on the treadmill or being patient with a difficult person in your life, whatever you want to motivate. And then as you see yourself doing that, or as you sort of know you're going to be doing that or thinking about yourself doing that, also at the same time, try to have that really emotionally and sensorily rewarding experience of how good it will be to do that thing. And then Mm -hmm. naturally, over time, with repetition, not quite like Pavlov's dog, but in the ballpark, 
you'll start to associate the two together. Mm -hmm. And then increasingly, your brain will naturally predict and expect and therefore lean in the, in the direction of that juicy reward by the means of doing whatever it is you want to motivate. So let's say to kind of move the example a little bit, that somebody is having a challenging time continuing to kind of plug away at their job. Mm. They Maybe they like their job even, kind of in the example of the Healthy Passion episode that we had, where somebody is you know, pretty, pretty cool about the work that they do. It's not overtly painful. They're not going through a lot of suffering or whatever yeah. it might be. But just the wearing away of time, it's tough to get up at six or seven every day, plug away for eight hours, and then sit in traffic on the way back home. What are some of the kinds of rewards that somebody could imagine in that sort of an example? What are some of those kind of juicy pairings that they do just to make it feel very real for people? It's a huge, huge, huge topic, and one that also speaks to our uh, way of life these days, no longer as hunter-gatherers, mm. and also no longer working in community with others. Mm. If you think about in history, most people did their work in the framework of community with other people. The more we're challenged by the kind of work many, many of, of us are doing, the more we need from the inside out to become skillful with our own motivational and related to it, well-being machinery. So how to do it? Um, I've dealt with this issue myself, and I've really uh, practiced with it in my, in my own self. So one thing is to focus, uh, as we've talked a bit about, on experiencing reward along the way. Hmm. So really focus, break your day down into these small tasks, and even play a game inside your mind so that as you finish every single email, I, I relate to this one, or as you complete every sales call, including the ones in which people hang up on you, or you move through certain periods in your day, like the morning period before the break, and then uh, the period of a meeting, and then after the meeting before lunch, etc. As you do that, try to experience a sense of accomplishing each one of those little steps each day. There's a sense of completion. I got this done, or I survived that thing. Either way, it, you're successful. You can feel successful at the completion of that thing. We, I believe, talked about that some in the uh, section of this podcast about gratitude, mm -hmm. for example. Another thing is to help yourself experience a kind of uh, intrinsic well-being in whatever you're doing. So that whatever you're doing, it may not be the most amazing thing in the world, but you're experiencing well-being while you're doing it. So the well-being itself keeps you going. Mm -hmm. you, Keep enjoying what you're doing. And I'll, I'll give you a weird little example of that. Many years ago, I went to get coffee and a bagel, I guess, at the bakery run by the San Francisco Zen Center. This was, hmm. I don't know, 35 years ago, probably. And uh, I rolled in, and it was a funky little hole in the wall, as it were. And there was a little bit of a line out the door because they had good coffee, whatever. And I walked in, and I saw all these people working there, uh, bussing the tables, uh, making the bagels, uh, replacing the coffee urns, working the cash register, sweeping the floor. Mm -hmm. And they had shaved heads and really, really clear eyes. And they were really friendly and present and authentic. And I, and clearly quite educated and capable. And, and I realized they weren't there to be bussing tables. Mm -hmm. That wasn't their main career in life per se. They were being a Zen practitioner whose practice in that moment was bussing a table mm -hmm. or washing a dish 
or refilling the half and half container. Mm -hmm. And it really shifted things for me. I realized that you could do just about anything. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Yeah, in the frame of your practice. And if and then you're imbuing it with meaning. You're giving it meaning as a form of practice. And even if you don't relate to what you're doing as a kind of meditation, whatever you're doing, still, uh, or a form of service to the larger world, still you can you can maintain your well-being, if at all possible, while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing that I've seen works. To give a personal example about that a yeah. little bit, um, as we've talked about, I think a little bit on the podcast, my major hobby is dancing. It's been a, a major subject of my life for probably about 10, 15 years now, kind of depending on how you count. But it's not necessarily my professional vocation. My professional vocation is all these other things that I do that are more sort of traditionally marketing and business related. But what I'll find is that there is a way to make the work that I do on my dancing part of my practice when I'm doing my normal work. For instance, I've recently started to become more habitual about correcting my posture when I'm sitting in a chair. Or, yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, it makes everyone who's listening stand up a little bit straighter, right? Yeah, no, just including me. Absolutely. Like, I I just find myself starting to cave into the keyboard a little bit. So, okay, I'll I'll reset the center of my body. I'll kind of take my shoulders a little bit back. I'll, I'll find the right kind of point on my seat that I want my weight to be on. And I'll just do that little fix. And it's a 30 second practice. But to your point, all of a sudden, I'm working like a dancer rather than just working, if that yeah. kind of makes sense. so That's interesting. So in this example, the practitioners were pouring coffee like a Zen practitioner as opposed to merely pouring coffee. And imbuing something with meaning in that sense, I think, is a great way to amp up the reward that you get from a relatively mundane experience. Yeah, exactly. Then the last thing I, I do myself, and I, I think it's useful, and I think other people do it too sometimes, is to bring a quality of playfulness to whatever you do. It's so easy to get lost in the routine. And uh, often, you know these people in a working environment, like one of my jobs uh, back in the day uh, was I worked in a bottling plant uh, on the graveyard shift from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in uh, sort of a rundown area of Los Angeles uh, a long, long time ago. And uh, I was in college and I needed to make some money. And so that's the job I did. And there were always people on the shift, literally lifting heavy crates hour after hour after hour, loading trucks or doing things that were really pretty mundane, like moving a forklift around. And yet they had an attitude of good humor about it. They would make jokes. There was a kind of gallows humor, if you could say that about, oh my God, this job sucks. Ha ha ha. Mm-hmm. And yet, saying, oh my God, this job sucks, ha ha ha, they were able to be more, uh, uh, to maintain their well-being on the job, Mm -hmm. even though it sucked. So that quality of humor or playfulness uh, of any kind, I think if we bring that to what we're doing, we're more able to be rewarded. We feel more rewarded while we're doing it, and it makes it easier to keep on doing it. So you might ask yourself, what's your own little spunkiness? Mm -hmm. Like I love people have a certain spunkiness or feistiness. Uh, they're not disloyal to the situation. They're not trying to you know, throw sand in the gears of the factory. But there is a certain feistiness that's present. And I think that's a good thing to draw upon to mm-hmm. keep yourself motivated in what could be otherwise a kind of dreary, dreary humdrum job. We probably all know a person who has a relatively easy time doing this. And we probably all know people, in some cases ourselves, who have a more challenging time doing this. 
Uh, so is there kind of genetic variation or interpersonal variation in the extent to which people find it kind of easy to intercede in this uh, motivational machinery? There, there is. There are several different um, neurobiological systems of factors, let's say. Mm-hmm. One of the key ones has to do with dopamine, which mm. I mentioned previously mm-hmm. in the, what was it for us? Ventral tegmental uh, area. Yes. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that, nailed it. <laughs> that's, it. <laughs> that's it. Actually, it has the acronym um, VTA that's often used. Okay, I, see, I might actually be able to remember VTA. I, I'll, I'll say VTA, and then somebody will ask me what it stands for, and I won't be able to answer, Just but say, I'll know VTA. It's in your brain, dude. Yeah, exactly. It's a part of the brain. You'll be fine. Don't you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's how you should say it. Anyway. Dopamine. Well, so dopamine's a molecule, and it gets, uh, in a sense, released, uh, excreted in some sense, by these dopamine-transmitting neurons. And that molecule is taken up on the receiving side of a synapse, uh, where there are little docking stations that are designed to receive that particular shape of molecule. Those are dopamine receptors, which are different from serotonin receptors or oxytocin receptors or receptors for other key neurochemicals in the brain. Different people, naturally and genetically, are designed to produce, sometimes it's called express, a lot of dopamine receptors or relatively few dopamine receptors. And anything neurobiological, let alone genetically involved, is pretty complicated. But essentially, there are two classes of people genetically in the normal variation in the human genome. And people who have lots of dopamine receptors, don't need a lot of dopamine to experience a sense of reward and motivation, and they can keep on going. Mm. On the other hand, people who naturally, perfectly normal, naturally don't have many dopamine receptors, the dopamine sitting in the receptors they have gets used up relatively quickly in terms of its impact on the neuron, so there need to be many frequent pulses, releases, of dopamine to keep triggering dopamine-related activity in the downstream neurons. And it's important to appreciate that we're talking about what's happening in neural networks in which a typical neuron is making several thousand connections with other neurons and in a really, really intertwined kind of way. So through that network, uh, someone with fewer dopamine receptors needs many pulses, many ripples of reward. And I can think of two very, very immediate examples here, my father and my mother. My dad was the kind of person who could just keep on going. He didn't need a lot of stimulation. He could just quite happily putter away doing the dishes or grading papers or working on a book or organizing his bird collection that he had of uh, models of birds made out of glass and stuff like that. He was a happy camper. Uh, We all kind of stared at him, like, how do you just keep on doing that? My mother, on the other hand, I suspect uh, was one of those people who have fewer dopamine receptors, and uh, she had a really hard time finishing things. Mm -hmm. She had a hard time finishing classes. She was really quite bright, but she just would get bored. She would just run out. She would get things uh, 80% complete, and then Literally, it was like she just ran out of gas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people are, are like that. I, I think of them as dopamine depleters. Mm. And so then the question is what to do. And uh, before we go on, though, I, I just want to say fast that people who are naturally this way, 
experience a lot of shame and so, and criticism in the culture. Yeah, I for, was just about to mention that. Yeah, we'll dive in. I, I think you're making a really important point here, which is that there are, of course, differences in learned temperament. There are differences in ability to push on through obstacles. There are real differences in people just in terms of what they've earned in life. But there are also differences in biology. For sure. And I think that we're often kind of unwilling on a cultural level sometimes to give appropriate credence to those differences in biology and the ways that they can affect different people differently. To put it another way, if somebody's down a lot, that could be because they're just a morose person who is never pleased by anything. Okay, that's that's a possibility. But it's also a possibility that they have a significant biological difference from you that yep. changes their temperament. And there's certainly intervention we can make in the realm of biology, but a lot of that is just inherent. And I think that it kind of moves us into empathy more rapidly to recognize the ways in which we have those kind of fundamental biological differences from other people. That is very, very deep. Lots of implications that go way beyond the topic of motivation. Mm -hmm. um, one version of that for me is um, to really appreciate the way it shows up in my mind is everyone has a secret struggle. Mm -hmm. of one kind or another. I do myself. And we don't know the struggle that the person next to us is having often. And often as well, we, let's suppose a person is somewhat accomplished in life or has been successful in some ways, including moderately successful in their work or just getting through school. And it's really easy to pat yourself on the back and think, Yahoo, when you compare yourself maybe to other people who didn't get that far or didn't complete the race uh, in the same time that you did. And not realize that w those other people are swimming up against streams that mm -hmm. you cannot see. You don't know their history. You don't know what they deal with every day. You don't know if they're targeted uh, for systematic sort of baked in forms of oppression, sometimes described as the death of a thousand paper cuts every mm. day. Uh, you just don't know, and it's really haunting. And this also goes to a term you might know. It's called the fundamental attribution bias. It's one in which people tend to, mm -hmm. as a generalization, when they evaluate their successes, they think their successes are due to personal virtue, mm -hmm. that they really earned their accomplishments. And any form of failure is either due to misfortune or something they couldn't help. Sure. But on the other hand, if they look at other people, and they see other people uh, succeeding, and they say, well, it was luck. Mm -hmm. uh, you caught a lucky break. And uh, yet, if they look at other people who have failed in some way, uh, obviously, it was your fault. If you had just tried harder or been more like me, yeah. you, know, you would have done better on that job or career or whatnot. And you're exactly right. It's really important to appreciate this. Mm -hmm. To me, this is part of the reason that I like it when you go through those kind of fundamental biological factors that influence our psychology, because I really think it helps kind of push us to understand that there are these fundamental differences, and that while we absolutely should give ourselves appropriate credit for the wonderful things that we do in life, and, you know, occasionally wrap ourselves on the knuckles for the less than wonderful things that we do in life, there are a lot of underlying systems that are innate mm -hmm. and are simply up to the individualized chemistry of our often tricky brains. Yeah. And at least for me, that's really helped me move into a little bit of a holding less lightly 
of both my positive traits and my quote-unquote negative ones. And yeah. I think that, you know, it's probably made me a little bit more psychologically healthy as a result. 100%. There's different terminology, and it's, it's sometimes has some issues. But if you think of people who are more toward the spirited end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. more lively, sometimes feisty, also if we start moving farther and farther out in the normal range, uh, people start talking about attention deficit or people who are hyper- and I think of that as um, not a inherent pathology, but a real problem of fit with certain kind of modern situations. So that's a lot of people we're really talking about here. And uh, then in addition to whatever is true uh, in terms of uh, innate constitution in the expression of dopamine receptors, say, we have the effects of life experiences, which change the body over time. So the biology itself that you're working from today is the result of both nature and nurture. Mm-hmm. And it has landed in nature, and it becomes nature uh, as a factor as you move into the next minute of your life. It is really profound to think about how the ways in which nature and nurture both uh, produce the nature you have now, which is a biological factor mm-hmm. in how you act and think and feel and what your options are in the next minute, hour, or day of your life. That's very nuanced. That's good. It's haunting to get it. No, it's like I, the body I, I matters. It's, it's a funny I way to think about it. it. Yeah. I yeah. mean, just that, that relationship between you have your body and your body creates, quote unquote, a nature. Yeah. And then that nature affects how you are, quote unquote, nurtured. Yeah. Which then, because we know that the brain changes over time, that's the fundamental teaching in all of your work, is yeah. that idea of experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the brain changing the brain over time, is that that nature gets nurtured in different ways, which then changes its nature, yeah. which then changes how you get nurtured. Yeah. I mean, you know, not to, not to get too cosmic here, but there is a certain chicken and the egg about all of this. And I think that the kind of fundamental teaching is to intervene where you can with as much positive effort as you can and to not get too overwhelmed by the ways where you can't. Yeah, it's a funny way to think of it. On the on the day that, let's say, a, a little girl is born, her body is the result primarily of nature. Mm-hmm. There actually is as well evidence that um, the nervous system of the fetus mm-hmm. is having experiences that, uh, for example, by the seventh month in utero can involve a fully anatomically mature amygdala. Hmm. So a fetus is capable, for example, of fear learning. Think about that. So it's possible that there is some nurture going on in utero, but let's just kind of acknowledge that possibility and focus mainly on nature here. The day that baby is born, her nature is based on um, heritable factors, primarily her genetics. All right. But then nurture happens to her. The process of nurture changes her body. And then now 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, the nature of her body is the result both of her innate nature and the bodily impacts, the biological, neurobiological impacts of all the nurture broadly defined that she's experienced. And I think that's quite extraordinary to really get concretely in part because it shifts how we think about ourselves. Mm. A lot of people, when they consider their own mind, you know, their own psychology, like how I feel about this or what I think about that or how motivated I am or not toward one thing or another, uh, then it seems like uh, 
it's kind of my fault and uh, I'm, I'm a bad person. But if you really realize that, that, no, what's happening right now is primarily grounded in your actual body mm. and how your body is right now is a result of loosely 10,000 causes upstream of this moment, most of which, as we just talked about with the attribution bias, uh, don't have much to do with you or due to other causes. So in a sense, to build on the terminology, the language uh, from the first person I, I heard use that expression, a tricky brain, Professor Paul Gilbert. Uh, a founder of self-compassion therapy, or rather compassion-focused psychotherapy in uh, the United Kingdom, just a great person, he points out that your nature right now is not entirely your fault. Mm. The state of your body right now, which is the basis of your nature in this moment, moving into the future, right now is not entirely your fault, but it is entirely your responsibility. Mm. I think that's a really wonderful teaching to kind of close that thought on for sure. We've uh, we've really gone down the rabbit hole here and I'm glad that we have. I think it's been a very, I mean, for me personally, at least a very interesting conversation to kind of wind our way back to the the motivational circuit. Good for you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing, doing my best job as a host here. And to focus on some of those maybe more actionable, yeah. practical ways yeah. that somebody who struggles with that machinery mm -hmm. might be able to influence their tricky brain. Yep. What are some of the things that we can do to increase our experience of those rewards yep. so that they become bonded more closely to the positive actions that we want to pursue? Yeah. So I would say that one of my tricky traits is that yeah. I have typically been one of those people who struggles with motivation. So for the people out there who do have a harder time motivating themselves towards those positive ends. Are there any really fundamental suggestions that you would give to them in terms of highlighting experiences or finding novelty? Great deep question. So let's just talk first only about dopamine. Great. So what, what releases, what, what stimulates pulses of dopamine activity to keep the container vessels, the little ships carrying dopamine molecules uh, coming frequently to those uh, relatively few docking stations on the outer surfaces of the synaptic receptors. Well, one thing that releases uh, dopamine, one thing that produces pulses of activity are expectations fulfilled. Mm. So if you move through your day, setting expectations that are only a minute or 10 or half 20 minutes into the future uh, if you, especially if you think about when do you tend to space out or burn out? What's your natural swerving away time frame? Like my dad, he would just keep chugging for eight hours probably in a row. My mom, closer to 20 minutes. After about mm -hmm. 20 minutes, she had to shift gears or it was really hard for her to keep on going. So if you set your expectation loop or cycle inside the time frame of when you naturally tend to burn out on motivation, run out of gas, uh, then what you can do is when that expectation is fulfilled, like I'm going to get all this done during this period of time, then when it's fulfilled, ah, good on me, goal accomplished, expectation fulfilled, spike of dopamine, now I'm motivated for the next cycle mm -hmm. of activity, as it were. That if you know you naturally tend to fade around 20 minutes, set it for 15 minutes in your own mind. What can I get done in the next 15 minutes? That's really interesting, and I had never made this connection, but I wonder if there's any linking there to what's called the Pomodoro technique, which is a productivity technique where basically you set a timer for 20 minutes, hmm. and you work hard through that 20 minutes, 
And then when the timer goes off, you stand up and you take about a two or three minute break. Hmm. And then, so you take a two, three, five minute break, you walk around, you get a drink of water, do whatever, check your phone, whatever. Okay. And then you sit back down, you set the timer for 20 minutes again, and you work for about another 20 minute period. I'm not super familiar with the research on it, Hmm. but the basic underlying principle is that people have a really hard time working with intensity for hours and hours on end, Mm -hmm. even if you are an extremely motivated person. Mm. So you actually become more productive Mm. when you start to break your day up into working chunks like that. And to your point, you're giving your brain an opportunity in those five-minute moments to find reward, to reset, to set a new goal that has a new accompanying reward with it, and then to go from there. So I do wonder if there's kind of an overlap there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of that technique. And I bet for a lot of the population who do tend to naturally burn out after about 20 minutes, it's 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 a time frame that's well set. Uh, it could be that for other people, it's better to set it at 29 minutes oh, or absolutely. 34 yeah. minutes mm-hmm. or, you know, find your own setting. But the basic idea sounds, yeah, really right. Yeah. For me, I find that I, when I start working, mm. I'm able to plug away for 45 mm. minutes, an hour, even longer, no, no problem. Yeah. Um, and that I need to kind of take a moment. It's that moment of starting working that I often mm. struggle with. So mm. for me, it makes more sense for me to kind of set those at longer intervals so I don't interrupt my work process. Anyways, The point is that everyone's different, and it gets to that point of underlying biology. I just found it so interesting that the time length that you chose was so close to the one for this extremely famous productivity technique. So that's one way to connect the motivational machinery to that experience of reward. You're Mm. giving yourself basically more rewards to feel by setting those little goalposts through your day. Is there another technique that you would give people? Yeah. It's interesting about dopamine. Dopamine activity tends to increase when expectations are fulfilled, and it also tends to increase when uh, there is a surprise. Mm. In other words, when something happens that is not expected. And this makes sense given animal evolution. uh, When something new appeared as an opportunity, like a new little movement in the grass that might indicate that there was some food there uh, to focus upon, uh, or uh, there was potentially a new threat. Uh, that movement in the grass might be a predator creeping towards you. So suddenly something that was novel or surprising uh, is really important to pay attention to. So the way that works in work, I think, is to keep bringing uh, a, a, an awareness to what you do that could be called beginner's mind or a child mind or sometimes called don't know mind. It doesn't mean duh mind. It means a mind that's really open to the sense of freshness in the next moment. Also, in what you're doing, um, deliberately help yourself pay attention to what's different from what you're normally routinely doing. So maybe you have a routine that you respond to customer service inquiries, and there's a certain routine about it, or maybe you're doing the dishes, or maybe you cook for a living. There's a fair amount of routine in that, or maybe you're doing forms of childcare or caring for older people or working in a healthcare environment. But inside what you do, there's always something different. They're, the name of the person you're dealing with is different. Or this particular dish has a special pattern of dried soup on it. Uh, it's different. Uh, this interaction is different in some way. So paying attention to what is different or novel is another way to uh, hack your brain to keep producing pulses of dopamine to help you stay motivated. 
Okay, so we're increasing the number of rewards in our day. We're increasing the novelty of those potential experiences, or we're looking for novel experiences to find along the way. Is there another recommendation that you would give? Dopamine also tends to increase uh, in relationship to activity in the natural opioid system in the brain, which is involved with experiences of things being fun or enjoyable or pleasurable, uh, especially pleasurable. So if you can find ways to help your job be more pleasurable, uh, both by intervening in what you do to the extent you can, so it's more pleasurable like you can listen to music while you're doing repetitive activities, like loading crates in the RC Cola bottling plant. point I'm making is that if you can do little things to help your work in various ways, including little things in your mind, like imagining the people in the meeting you're stuck in are wearing funny hats uh, or uh, listening inside yourself to some really cool music uh, in your own mind or literally in, with earbuds. The more you can make what you do rewarding and pleasurable, then you're going to naturally have more dopamine activity and be able to keep on going. One last thing, the fourth suggestion here, especially for people with fewer dopamine receptors, is find whatever ways work for you to train in mindfulness so that you're more able to remain stably present in the moment, agape at the amazingness of even the most boring beige moments in life. We've covered a lot of ground during this episode. To give one maybe final thought, I think that it's really interesting that literally every example you've given so far having to do with motivating yourself and climbing the mind self-motivation has been positive in nature. All of them have been about finding something desirable or pleasurable in the experience, um, increasing the novelty in a fun way of the experience, literally increasing the fun factor of the experience, bringing more mindfulness to it. These are all positive. None of these are about self-criticism. And so many people, when they think about motivation, think about kind of cracking the whip over themselves, like forcing themselves to get out of bed, forcing themselves to go into work, forcing themselves to go to the gym, forcing themselves to be kind to their partner, whatever it might be. Every example you gave was was more about nurturance than it was about criticism. Mm. And I think that there's a real teaching there. It reminds me, actually, of the difference I've experienced with two kinds of rock climbing guides. Mm. Normally, guides are encouraging. Mm -hmm. And what is, it, what is the heart of the word encouragement? It's to give you courage. And the mm. heart of that word is heart. Mm -hmm. They are uh, in enheartening you. Uh, and... That's good. So I've had guides and they would point out what I did wrong or how to do it better. And they would encourage me sometimes in very uh, guide-ish ways. Quick whining, Hanson, and start climbing. <laughs> Whine less, climb more, get going, etc. But it was offered with good humor and support. And then I had this one guide. He was a very talented climber. Mm. But I don't know if I caught him on a bad day. Maybe he was hungover. I don't know what. He was irritable. He never said anything good about what I was doing. He kept yanking on the rope for me to keep um, climbing up toward him, even when it was incredibly hard and I just couldn't do it. And uh, I could feel his impatience and his irritability mm. and his criticism of me, his disdain for me as not a very good climber compared to him, rippling down the rope. And that actually made me a worse climber right there. Difference between 
uh, criticism in the sense we're meaning it as that which tears people down and focuses on what is not the bullseye compared with people who are encouraging, who see your possibility, keep you going, and point out when you're getting closer and closer to the bullseye. If you think about it, negative feedback is not as informative as positive feedback. All negative Mm. feedback does is it tells you the one thing out of a set of a large set of possibilities that is the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. But positive, but it doesn't tell you what the uh, small number of positive things are to do. Positive feedback, on the other hand, points you right to the bullseye and sends you in that direction. And it's forward focused and it's future oriented and it's a really good thing to do. Now, there really is also, of course, a place for uh, criticism, including self-criticism. And I'm thinking here, honestly, of a moment for me that was very important for me. And I can remember it right now. Uh, In my 20s, I'd been partying pretty heavily the night before. And uh, as I headed to bed, I looked at my face in the, uh, in the mirror there, and I saw the bagged look under my eyes and the just bleh look, and I imagined uh, a spiritual teacher of mine at the time looking at my face over my shoulder. And it was a very powerful moment of looking hard and going, wow, I really don't want to go down that road. And uh, the teacher, as I imagined him, wasn't critical in the sense that I'm using of this rock climbing guide. He wasn't horribly shaming. On the other hand, he looked at me really clearly and shook his head in dismay and disappointment. And uh, I, I really felt it. And that I had the same dismay and disappointment for myself. So I, th- I, don't want, I want to be clear. This is not about um, every buddy is always doing the best they can do in every moment because I don't think that's true. And it doesn't mean uh, steering away from appropriate remorse or self-criticism or even shame. On the other hand, it means that those experiences of negative feedback really land, including due to the negativity bias of the brain. And it's much more effective, and research supports this, especially over the long haul, to imagine being who you really want to be and help yourself feel your way into being that. And then on the basis of being that person who is, fill in the blank, uh, physically fit or uh, really committed to dance or really engaged with building your own business, uh, as being that person, you naturally then lean into the right direction. I think that's a great note to end this episode on. Today, we focused on inclining the mind, which included the fundamental motivational machinery of the brain, learning how to nudge those often tricky brains towards the ends that are good for us and away from the ends that are bad for us. We began by learning about that biology at a fundamental level, the key takeaway from that being that we have to increase our association between action and reward for an experience to become basically picked up by our brain's motivational machinery. Some people have an easier time doing this than others. We spent a considerable part of the episode talking about basic biological differences and how in society we often kind of sweep those biological differences under the rug in a variety of different ways. A particularly important takeaway about the biological basis for motivation is realizing how much of our day-to-day behavior is founded on fundamental biological conditions inside of our body. 
And while some of those biological conditions are influenceable in a variety of different ways, many of them are just the basic machinery that we were given when we popped out into the world. Thinking about things in that way can move us into a more positive relationship with that motivational machinery. We then moved into a variety of ways that people who struggle with motivation can amp up the noticeability of the experiences throughout their day, turning relatively mundane experiences into opportunities to feel various kinds of reward. Some of the examples that you gave from those were looking for more rewards out there in the world, whether that be setting little goals, little intermediate goals, so that you have more opportunities to feel a sense of satisfaction, increasing our capacity for mindfulness so that we notice all of the good little things that are around us all the time, whether that be somebody that smiles at us in the corridor or how interesting a sheet of paper is. (laughs) You also gave this really wonderful story about the Zen practitioners working in the cafeteria and how we can bring a sense of purpose, a sense of training, a sense of practice into very, very mundane actions, which really helps our brain find them important and notice them as kind of a part of our broader purpose in life, which can be extremely motivating. Finally, we closed by noticing that the different kinds of motivation that you've mentioned throughout this episode have almost entirely been what I would describe as positive in nature. They've been more about nurturance than about criticism. And while it certainly makes sense from time to time to look at our behaviors with an honest and open eye, as you were saying, the idea of imagining a mentor kind of over your shoulder evaluating in a positive way, in a way that's designed to build you up rather than tear you down, but still evaluating, taking an honest look at your actions, can be a really wonderful way to incline yourself more in the direction of those positive ends. That's all for this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a second to leave a review, leave a rating, and subscribe to it if you have yet to do so. We really do appreciate it, and it helps other people find the podcast. Next week, we're going to have an episode that's maybe a little bit different. We'll be learning some of the personal lessons about sustaining consistent motivation from one of the most dedicated people I know. So until then, thanks for listening.